This is Our People and Mother Earth on KWSO. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, recently talked about plans to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. And today, she will give us a quick introduction into the commemoration and a brief history of her upbringing. On Monday, our country will honor Indigenous Peoples Day, and we have a lot to celebrate. The strength of Indigenous communities, the traditions and cultures that have survived millennia, and our hope for the future of Indigenous communities. As I join you from the ancestral homelands of the Anacostan and Piscataway people, our world is facing the global crisis of climate change. More intense storms, historic droughts, extreme wildfire, heat waves, sea level rise, and so much more. But nature can be our ally in addressing these challenges, and there's no better community to ask about nature-based solutions than indigenous communities. From wildfire prevention to managing drought and famine for millennia, our ancestors use nature-based approaches to coexist with mountains and deserts, oceans and rivers, plants and animals alike. We call these learning indigenous knowledge. Indigenous people carry with us generations and generations of knowledge that was passed down to us by our families. And it's by incorporating indigenous knowledge into our work that we can restore balance to nature. As a first Native American cabinet secretary, I carry these valuable perspectives with me. My responsibility to future generations is ingrained in me by my culture and traditions but I believe we all have that obligation to the future. It was during time spent with my grandparents in Mesita, our, my, our small village in Laguna, that I learned our obligations to steward the earth. I would spend summers in the cornfield with my grandpa where he passed down our own agricultural traditions. He passed them down to me as we tended the cornfields that our pueblos cultivated since time immemorial. He taught me about how precious water is, about how the snow in the mountains fed the river, which then fed our fields. He taught me to take from the earth only what we can use and not more. Today, I want others to share how their traditions and indigenous knowledge are shaping the work they are doing to improve climate resiliency and adaptation. By showing us how cultural and traditional practices can help address the climate challenges we face, we can all learn for the future. Laura Elwa Klalem, tribal chairwoman, Francis Charles, gives us a history of the tribe with some accomplishments they have achieved over the years. Our reservation is located on the Elwa River on the northern coast of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Our Elwa people have lived there for thousands of years in balance with one abundant salmon runs, which always provided the food and the ceremony. We are a party of the 1855-point-no-point treaty, which we reserved our fish hunting and gathering rights. In 1913, the Elwa River was built just a few miles upstream from our homes. No one had told us and no one had asked us. The dam blocked 95% of the river and almost overnight reduced the salmon runs of a tiny fraction of what they have been, a severe and fragmented of our treaty rights and the violations of the state law. Behind the dam, Aldwell Reservoir flooded an ancient village site in our creation site. And that is something that uh, we are sacrificing in different areas just as much 
is in our area for the sacred sites. In 1925, a second dam was built upstream from the first. We worked for literally 100 years to remove the dams. And I really thank our ancestors and all the previous council members because I'm following their footsteps. In 1992, Congress passed an act that launched the dam removal process. Demolition finally began in 2011 and was completed in 2014. Still work to be done. Dam removal was possible because the Lower Elwha Preserve, we, we were inspired by all the sacrifices of our ancestors and by our own for our future generations. We never gave up. Our name is Clallam, means strong people, and that is what we have shown in order to remove the dams. Congress took action in 1992 because we forged partnerships with the local government, states, and federal agencies, the local businesses, communities, conservation organizations, tribes, the National Park Service from Interior Department was an earlier partner and a strong one because much of the Elwha River is in protected statuses with the Olympic National Park. We also work closely with the National Marine Fisheries Service to ensure that the settlement discharge and other initiative impacts of the dam removal would not inadvertently wipe out any salmon runs. MIPS helped us develop hatchery programs that preserve native genetics without harming the ultimate goals of restoring the wild fish. This is the largest ecosystem restoration project ever undertaken in the United States, and it is not finished yet. At present, salmons are still in the early stages of reestablishing themselves throughout the river, particularly in the upper part of the watershed. But the things are definitely moving in the right direction. The most important next step in the restoration process is the, for Congress to enact the HR 8286, which our congressman introduced in July. This bill would transfer the formal Aldwell Reservoir land to the tribe and trust and the reservation status as anticipated by Congress in 1992 Elwha Act. We are working with our senators to introduce a, a companion bill in the Senate and are hopefully that we can enact a historical legislation this year. Our tribe is very proud of what we have accomplished so far. We anticipate many partners and especially our partners from the Interior Department. We are a small tribe of a thousand uh, enrolled members with limited resources, but very definitely to fully restore our beloved river and protect our treaty rights. Frances was asked how she would advise other tribes who want to incorporate their indigenous knowledge into similar restoration projects. So in order to remove the dams and begin in the restoration, we had to learn many new things, such as lobbying, litigations, and fishery science, mainly. But we had learned that these new things from our indigenous perspectives for working with and managing the river for the fish, the people, and all of the living things. One special skill we developed was that I would like to point out is our ability to do hands-on river restoration projects such as building and engineering log jams to create microhabitats that salmon needed to migrate up and down the river. We developed a crew from the Elwha um, tribal members to do this work and under supervision of our habitat restoration biologists. And that, that was something that uh, we had taken ownership on that part of it. But in addition to the coalition 
that we built in the 1980s and 90s was really based on our potlatch traditional sharing that we had done with the surrounding communities and in the school districts. In this case, we tried to share the importance of restoring the river as sometimes that would benefit everyone, not just the tribes, but everyone. And it turned out to be the most uh, people that we were able to organize from and we all agreed with. We had our disagreements, but we were able to come to an agreement. Next up is Karen Diver, who is the former chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior, Chippewa. As I was coming back from the Obama administration, I was approached by a group of researchers from the University of Minnesota. The tribe had previously engaged different parts of the University of Minnesota because we needed, in order to protect our resources, specifically around wild rice, we were involved in state actions, you know, permitting activities with the Army Corps of Engineers, and it seemed like all of those other processes outside of the reservation valued Western science more than our knowledge that we were using internally. And we incorporate our elders into natural resource management on Fond du Lac. We take young college educated tribal members in the sciences and we pair them with elders and they do field work together so that they can hear those stories and hear about that generational learning, much like Madam Secretary referenced. But we know we need that Western science as well. So these researchers wanted to look at wild rice and they were coming from hydrology and, um, you know, biology, not thinking about what the tribes need, but really motivated by their own research agenda. And they asked if I would help. And I told them, it's not your fault that your education failed you. You only believe what you've been told in your Western based education. And there's so many other ways of knowing that you weren't taught and it's not your fault. But if you're going to step foot on a tribal community, first of all, you need to understand that most of your research has been done because you value it. It's something you're interested in and not necessarily a priority that was set by the tribe. So I wouldn't even let them begin talking to tribes until they got training about tribal governments and sovereignty, cultural protocols. How do you ask permission to come on the land? But also said that it's about relationships. We take care of natural resources because we are taking care of our relatives and they see it as a commodity. We didn't want them doing the genome or trademarking it or anything else and that they needed to ask permission. So they started building those relationships and what they found out was, yeah, tribes need Western-based science. It's one of the tools in their toolbox. But in order to get access to understand how we caretake, they needed to be trusted first. And it meant going in the field and coming back, doing data agreements with the tribes, respecting tribal sovereignty about where you can do this research or not, where you can publish, where you're not allowed to publish, and more or less changing the power dynamic of how those relationships are implemented in the field. They soon learned that it was multidisciplinary from a tribal perspective because tribes, it's a cultural activity for us, but it's also a protective factor for our youth to be involved in these activities. It's a public health issue because it's a part of our traditional foods and traditional diet. It's a part of our economic engine. And so they started to bring in other researchers and round out and become a multidisciplinary team. These researchers got fundamentally changed by this project and going into community and hearing from elders, they had to give up control. They had to sign those data agreements and get them through their institutions. But each of them says it's fundamentally changed how they see themselves as 
as a servant to the public, and in this case, tribes, that they weren't doing it out of their own interest, but because it was a tribal need and it would aid their stewardship and their capacity to caretake their relatives. So there's value in both, and they don't know what they don't know. But when we can exert our sovereignty and marry our research with TEK as well as Western science, we can take care of our relatives much better. Karen was asked how to protect indigenous knowledge while engaging with mainstream researchers and universities. You know, we need to develop institutional review boards. Many communities have them. It's usually around human subjects. We need to teach universities that we view natural resources, many of the things in it, as our relatives. And so they'll use the same protocols that they do through an institutional review board. There's samples out there. You can pass ordinances. You could have community members sit on that to safeguard. You have to have MOUs and MOAs to protect your data sovereignty and give permission at each step and let the researchers know they can't publish. And then I would also challenge the federal government a little bit. We have an open science initiative now with federal funded projects. How do tribes where they are leveraging their university relationships, how do they say we need to be able to do the research, but it needs to not be open data? We need to still maintain control over our traditional ecological knowledge so that it's not exploited. Also joining the conversation was chairwoman of the Wampanoag tribe of Gehedaquina, Cheryl Andrews-Maltese. As we know, the Creator blessed us with our Mother Earth and all her gifts, as well as the responsibility to maintain them. We've stewarded our lands and our waters and have taken care of our Mother Earth since time immemorial so she could take care of us and our future generations to come. What's happening to our Mother was not meant to be, and we must act quickly to return to some of our old ways to restore our balance to help our Mother heal. As we know, tribal communities have a unique insight into caring for our environment in our traditional way. The knowledge is still present. We rely on our elders, as has been mentioned, who have the knowledge and who share it with us. They not only share how things were done, but more importantly, is why they were done the way that they were done. Understanding and blending the inherent knowledge of our past with the scientific aspects of the presence just enhances our ability to protect and preserve our continued use of our lands and waters for the sustenance and subsistence of our people and all people. I'm so very glad that the powers that be, our federal partners, are finally looking to Indian country's knowledge to help. And as always, we in Indian country stand ready to do so. With regard to some of the projects that we've been doing and what we've been noticing as a coastal tribe, we've been seeing the direct impacts of climate change for years. Uh, The 100-year storms are almost annually now. We've seen the increase in the severity, length, and devastation, the erosion that they've been causing, the flooding, and the changing of the bathymetric flows are basically the current, which is removing and redepositing silt and sand in other areas. Being on an island, we see these impacts through a literal 360-degree lens. Our beaches and ponds, estuaries, wetlands, and bogs are all feeling the effects of climate change. And these impacts are changing the delicate eco-balance and their interconnectivity of our Mother Earth, which sustains us. One of the projects that we were compelled to do is beach nourishment and dune restoration. And that was in order to protect our natural cranberry bogs. What it was was a project to rebuild our sand dunes and to add beach grass to our beaches and add sand to the beaches to regrow the dunes as our natural barriers to protect our wetlands and our cranberry bogs. 
we maintain our bogs in a natural and traditional way. We don't use herbicides or pesticides. We don't flood the bogs to increase harvest. And so for us, the soil, sun, and rain conditions all need to be correct and natural, and those natural protections need to be in place. So when these protective elements are impacted, like the dunes and the beaches, so are we, and so is our sustenance of our cranberries. Like after Hurricane Sandy, those protections and barrier dunes were gone completely. So we had to make sure we reestablished the ability to ensure that whatever the storms might take place, they don't overflow and hit into those areas. With the help and assistance of FEMA, EPA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and BIA funding, we began the process of beach nourishment. And with other methods, we've now seen the success of that, that the dunes are actually rebuilding themselves. The grass has taken root, and it's gone from being what was mainly a tribal initiative to a tribal community initiative to an island-wide initiative because we're all in it together, especially when we're on, on an island. We also had to do road repairs after Sandy and culvert installation so that this way we could mitigate the, all the chemical runoff from vehicles driving down our roads and polluting our bogs. And plus, with the temperatures changing, we're also having to fight and combat toxic algae blooms within our waters because the temperatures are no longer consistent to where they keep those things at bay. We shared with having a pond restoration where we reintroduced base color propagation, planting eelgrass, dredging the channel to open up the flow, and restoring our herring run. The depletion of nutrients, as well as the salination becoming higher and lower, are impacting our entire aquatic environment. Certain conditions need to be balanced appropriately. So by taking these measures of what we know our areas were, the impacts of climate change, and taking our traditional cultural knowledge Embracing it with the contemporary sciences, we've been able to reproduce and restock our ponds, which now a lot of our tribal members can still use our oysters, base scallops, and winter flounder as a way to sustain themselves both economically and healthily, as well as its supplies for them making a living or supplementing their living. And those are two of our most successful projects, but they have been highlighted and our community feels it, the island feels it, and Within our hearts, we feel it because we know we're restoring our mother back to her health as we evolve into a more responsible community of human beings. Cheryl was asked what she sees as unique about her coastal tribal community and how her people participate in the climate adaptation that she described. It's wonderful. You know, not only are we, the tribal community, the keepers of the, you know, indigenous knowledge so that we're here to fix the problem and having the community engaged, we actually do need the manpower. It's a daunting task to try to mitigate what's taking place through climate change and nature. But literally, we have all hands on deck. It's so rewarding to see the multiple generations working together side by side, our elders teaching all of us you know, what we need to know, and the children learning it so that we know we can be heartened by the fact that we are training them to be the stewards as we were supposed to, and they will be able to continue on for generations to keep the knowledge alive and the tradition and the culture and how we use that in all aspects of what we do, especially when it comes to our mother and caring for all of us. Secretary Holland closes the event. I'm just incredibly honored to have such wonderful leaders join our conversation today. Thank you all so much. As we face the climate crisis, Indigenous knowledge will be an invaluable resource that must be acknowledged and elevated. 
The truth is, if we are going to be successful in tackling the climate and biodiversity crises, we must empower the original stewards of our lands. President Biden has ushered in a new era of respect for indigenous knowledge and at Interior, we're putting actions behind that commitment. That includes partnering with native communities to co-steward our public lands and waters, and in some cases, transferring conservation responsibilities directly to tribal nations. I was honored to join the return of the National Bison Range to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes in Montana and hear singers summon the buffalo with their traditional songs. Likewise, the Dorshack Fish Hatchery in Idaho is now under the management of the Nez Perce tribe. The tribe is working closely with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the next generation of Native students to pass on their knowledge. By incorporating Indigenous knowledge into our work and ensuring we're leading with science-based decisions, we can restore balance to nature. That was Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who hosted a virtual event commemorating Indigenous Peoples Day. The event highlighted the importance of Indigenous knowledge in stewarding lands, waters, and wildlife. She was joined by Wizipen Garia, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs at the U.S. Department of the Interior, Francis Charles, the Lower Elwha Klallam Tribal Chairwoman, Karen Diver, the former chairwoman of the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa, and Cheryl Andrews-Maltese, the chairwoman of the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead Aquina. I'm Duncan Bruno, reporting for Our People and Mother Earth on 91.9 FM, KWSO.